And for those of you who are visiting or are new, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, I would invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Luke chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that now you would send your spirit in such a way that we would be able to connect to you and hear from you. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would be soft, uh, that would be moldable, that would be able to be willing uh, to be challenged and at times encouraged. And this morning, we pray that we would see the glory and the beauty of Jesus just a little bit more clearly. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You know, my family moved to New York from Korea when I was six years old. And uh, I still recall trying to figure out life in a foreign land. And this was especially the case going to school in New York. And uh, Public School 11 was the name of my elementary school. And for those of you who are not familiar, New York City schools are not generally named after Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, Kennedy. Too many schools. So your school had a number. PS11. It was uh, pragmatic. It keeps it simple. No one's offended. It's easy, right? And, you know, in my elementary school, each morning when the bell rang, when the bell rang, we started with the Pledge of Allegiance. And my second grade teacher, Mrs. Stein, would occasionally ask a student to come up forward to lead the class in the pledge. And on that fateful day, I got picked. And I was excited. I walked up to the front of the room, put my hand over my heart, and I realized I don't have this down, you know? I don't know it. It, I kind of know it, but I don't really know it. So what do you do when you're six or seven and you just don't know stuff? You just fake it. You make it up as you go along. So this is what I said. I said, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the 19 states of America (laughs) and to the Republicans for which it stands. One nation, on guard, invisible. And you just finished. The kids loved it. Everyone loved it. I was a hit. Next day, they were like, we want iron back up front. This is awesome. You know, but as funny as that is, and it still is something I remember um, after all these years, you know, when you're a kid and you go through this thing daily and you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, sometimes you don't even know what you're saying. You just do it. You know what I'm talking about? And if someone asked me as a six-year-old, where is your allegiance, I probably would have talked about sports. You know, sports is pretty easy. Who are you for? Who are you against? So if you're a Giants fan, it's easy. That means you likely hate the Dodgers, right? If you root for the Warriors, that means you root against the Lakers, right? And if your allegiance is to the Yankees, then the Red Sox are your enemy. It's easy. Politically, it's a little harder. It's like when people ask you, who do you vote for? Are you conservative? Are you progressive? Are you libertarian? You know? But all of those types of things are really next level in our text this morning. Because the emotions around the politics and religion were absolutely volatile in Jesus' day. It was just a powder keg ready to go off. And the religious leaders, they decided to exploit this as animosity toward Jesus had grown. You know, they had him under surveillance, we're told here. They sent spies. 
who pretended to be really sincere in order to catch him, to trap him. And they asked him, Teacher, we know what you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And they asked the question, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? I mean, this question is a trap to get Jesus to say something that will discredit him once and for all and be canceled. They're looking for Jesus to give an answer regarding his political allegiance. Are you pro-Rome? Are you pro-Israel? Where is your allegiance? And the answer they're hoping will get him killed. And what they get from Jesus is actually a response that leaves them speechless. He amazes everyone because he doesn't answer yes or no. He doesn't say I'm a progressive or a conservative. He doesn't side with the red or blue, but he does something utterly different. And I want us to look at that this morning because I want us to consider three things, a revolutionary hope that is described here, a vision that's revolutionary and a way that is revolutionary. A revolutionary hope, a revolutionary vision, and a revolutionary way. So let's think about the hope. Because historically, there's a whole lot going on here that helps to explain this passage. Because in AD 6, in 6 AD, Judea was annexed by Rome, and it became a Roman province. We know this. And that, at that time, Quirinius, who was the governor of the region, took a census to understand, among other things, the potential tax revenue of the region. We read about Quirinius in Luke chapter 2. And you know what they decided to do? They instituted what is known as a poll tax or a head tax. In general, all taxes are unpopular. Roman taxes are really unpopular. But this tax was particularly upsetting to all the Jewish people. Unlike a toll where you pay for traveling on a Roman road, unlike a tariff on commercial activity, or even an income tax on your personal income. I mean, the poll tax had nothing to do with anything else but this. The fact that you were a Roman citizen, and you got to pay a tax for the honor and privilege of being a Roman citizen. And this made it unpalatable already, but there was more on top of this. First of all, this tax was seen as oppressive, because the amount you pay was the same regardless of your income. It didn't matter if you were rich. It didn't matter if you were poor. You pay the exact same amount, one denarii. Okay? And this obviously disproportionately burdened those who were poor. And therefore, it was regarded as economically oppressive. The second problem with this tax was it was also regarded as idolatrous. It was problematic theologically because the people understood something. That throughout the Old Testament, there was this unbroken tradition and there was this hope that God would bring a new kingdom and usher in a new era. A new and restored world order where everything that was broken and wrong would be made right. So Ben earlier referenced Jesus' first sermon in Luke from Luke chapter 4 where he quoted Isaiah 61 where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he was describing what will happen when God's kingdom is inaugurated. Excuse me. And then surrounding this view is the idea that God alone had the right to rule. Your allegiance was first and foremost to God. I mean, this made uh, pagan Romans a direct challenge to the coming kingdom and a challenge to the belief that God himself would rule his people. So this tax was an affront to their allegiance to God, and the idea of paying this tax meant that you acknowledge the land, the people of Israel belong to Caesar and not to God. That's how people thought about this. So if you understand that, you begin to understand there's a whole lot going on here. You know, and when this tax was first imposed, there was a revolt led by a man named Judas the Galilean. 
And what he did was he led a group of Jewish zealots and patriots and revolutionaries to rise up against the Romans. And the rebellion was crushed. Judas was executed along with his family. But nevertheless, he inspired an entire insurgent movement of Jewish zealots who were vehemently against Roman occupation until in 70 AD, when Rome finally invaded Jerusalem, they crushed the city, destroyed the temple. And Judas, the Galilean, represented this kind of hope the people of Israel had, that someday, somehow, the kingdom of God would come and God would establish his rule as the true and right king. See, all this is in the background. And you know, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote about Judas the Galilean. And he said, this is what Judas the Galilean said. He called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in place of God. See this? The poll tax, this thing was the focal point of this whole conflict. And in this season of having all of this messianic fervor going on, all of this revolutionary sentiments, there was so much anticipation. No wonder there was so much support for Jesus that was mounting and growing as he entered Jerusalem at the end of Luke 19. Cleansed the temple. And everyone is asking, was he the long-weighted one who would usher in God's kingdom? So, when they ask this question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They are asking, are you a revolutionary? Do you stand with the kingdom of God or do you stand with the kingdom of Caesar? And you see the dilemma. Because they're trying to pit all these things against each other in a way so that they can trap Jesus. They're not really interested in the actual answer he's given. They just want to trap him. But he doesn't say anything else, but he says, you know what? That vision and that hope, that revolutionary hope we have, that is absolutely true. And he begins to tease all this out, and we'll get to that in a second. But before we get to that, I want us to look at this revolutionary vision. Because from Matthew and Mark's account, we know that the people who came to trap Jesus were the Pharisees and the Herodians. Okay? They're, again, not really interested in having a discussion with him because they're not very sincere. But it is very noteworthy these two groups came together because these two groups are on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. The Herodians, they're very progressive morally, theologically, socially, and they were known as Jewish-Roman sympathizers. On the other side, you have the Pharisees who were the conservatives morally, theologically, spiritually, socially, and they were opponents to the empire. And these two groups came together. And that should tell you something. You know why? Because both the progressives and conservative establishment, they found Jesus troubling. They found him troubling. For the progressives who don't believe in a God of judgment and wrath or the reality of sin, you know, where you get to decide what is right and wrong for yourself, not the scriptures. Jesus is far too truthful, far too confrontational, far too restrictive, just far too conservative, period. And for the conservatives who think the law can be attained by your moral achievement, by your own effort, that if you believe in just working harder, disciplining yourself, trying harder, pulling yourself up. Jesus is just too far too forgiving, far too compassionate. He is just too progressive. For the average progressive, Jesus is a very dangerous conservative. And for the average conservative, Jesus is a very dangerous liberal. Now, some of you have given a lot of thought to politics in light of the gospel and the scriptures and, and Jesus and you wrestle with it all of the time. But many of you who consider yourselves a progressive or a conservative here, you know, you're thinking about all these things. And oftentimes, I think this is what we do. We are waiting on Jesus to agree with us perfectly or 
we have another reason to kind of keep Jesus far away from us. A reason to reject him, a reason to keep him at bay, because it's like, you know what? I don't like your politics, Jesus. I don't like what you say. Aha, you know, Jesus or the church is too progressive for me. Too much forgiveness, compassion and grace, patience. All this talk in the Bible about the poor, the sojourner, the outsider. How about we get back to all the stuff we like, holiness, biblical ethics, God's judgment. I mean, what do you mean there's forgiveness for people? Gosh, let's talk about the other stuff. And the other side of it is, aha, I knew Jesus was far too right for me. Too much law, too much talk about personal sin and judgment. I mean, I can't accept all this, the ethics of the scriptures outdated, especially the sexual stuff. Look, whether you find Jesus to be too blue or too red, I think many of us are coming to trap him. Not just to hear him out, okay? Not allowing him to challenge us, rather to see if he fits our theological box. And the reason why is because you have not seen this revolutionary vision that Jesus is giving us. And instead, we have, you know, our borders set and we're saying, Jesus, you cannot enter here unless you agree with me. And we all do this in so many different ways. And Jesus is saying, let me paint for you a different picture. And this is why he's not answering the Herodians or the Pharisees directly with a yes or no, because his answer actually can't be encompassed in just a yes or a no. So how does he answer? And this is the revolutionary way I want to spend the rest of our time on. When they ask, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What does it say here in verse 23? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The word render means literally to give back or return. Return to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and return to God the things that are God's. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. It's not conservative. It's not progressive. He isn't agreeing with the Pharisees nor with the Herodians. He's giving his own vision of how all of this works. You know, and Jesus says, you should pay taxes and be involved in supporting civil government even when you think the government is bad or wrong because everyone believed Rome was wrong and they were oppressive. They were not good. And you should honor your civic responsibilities After all, you are a recipient of all the benefits of Roman rule, right? The coin that was minted, an economic system. You have roads you travel on. You have military protection you receive. All of this, it belongs to Caesar, so give back to him. You acknowledge the things that belong to him. But at the same time, he says, render to God the things that belong to God. Render to God. Give to God the things that are God's. All throughout the ancient world, there was a view that rulers and emperors, the kings, they were there by divine appointment. And when Jesus is saying, even when you support civil government, and when you are politically involved, and even when you pay your tax, you are not to pay homage. Even when you pay your tax, you are not to pledge your ultimate allegiance, because that alone belongs to God alone belongs to God. Do you see how nuanced this is? What Jesus presents is a vision that's revolutionary. You know, it's an entirely different way of thinking about politics, about spiritual life. Caesar has some authority you must acknowledge, but he doesn't have ultimate authority. And even if he can do some good to heal the problems and social ills of the world, he can't do ultimate good He can't bring about the healing that we all long for. That is just not possible. God can do that. The government cannot. Give him your tax, but not your worship. You know, in verse 24, this show me a denarius. Whose likeness on it? Whose inscription? 
you know, the denarius was an imperial coin used throughout the Roman Empire. And that coin was actually required for you to use when you paid your poll tax. So when Jesus asks whose likeness, whose inscriptions are on the coin, he's referring to the raised image of the emperor, Tiberius, which was minted with his silver, right? And literally, it had the icon or the image of Tiberius Caesar on it. You can go to lots of museums. They have these things in museums. There's lots of them left still. And you know what it read on the inscription? On the front of the coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And when you flip the coin over on the back, it said, Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. So he is king, the son of God, and the high priest. And in the ancient world, a king when he would come to conquer a land, would oftentimes place a statue or an icon of himself in a central location in the conquered land. And he did this to symbolize what? Even if the king isn't here, okay, you need to know who rules you. The city and all of this belongs to him. And this is what precisely you see in this coin. The image reminds you, you are a Roman subject The coin belongs to Caesar. He is the son of a god. He is the high priest in the Roman system. Everyone who pays taxes belongs to him. And this is the great irony because they're asking this of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, who is the true son of God, the true king, the true high priest, the one who has all honor, glory, and power, I mean, he is the true icon, the image of God. Colossians 1 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And just like the firstborn of any family had the primary inheritance rights to the family wealth, which means Jesus, the image of the invisible God, all of creation belongs to him. All authority all dominion, all power belong to him. And Jesus is a reminder that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. And they are asking him, what should we do with this? You know, what's also interesting is when they ask him about the coin, he asks them for a coin. He doesn't call, uh, pull the coin out of his own pocket out of his own coin purse, because he asked for one, likely because he didn't have one himself. I mean, here he is, the true king, the true high priest, the true son of God, and he doesn't even have a quarter to his name. He doesn't. I mean, how is this possible? You start thinking, he is showing us a different way. He's showing us, let me show you how the kingdom of God is at work. In every other political system, it's set up so that you use power. You gain power. You mobilize your power and authority to bring about change in a way that you put upon everyone. But on the cross, we see something utterly different. Jesus gives up everything. His wealth, his power, his life. He doesn't even have a day's wage to his name, which is what a denarius was. And he gives it all up in order to do what? I mean, why does Jesus say foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? Because he's given up all of these things in order that we would receive far more than we could ever hope or imagine. That we can experience his reign and his rule, his healing power, his glory, his wealth. And on the cross, Jesus makes the most radical political statement one can make. He aligns himself with the purposes of God. And he's saying, I want you to experience the fullness of life. And I want this so badly for each and every one of you. I want you to have this. And the way you're going to get it is for me to give up everything. He's not 
interested in serving his own interests, you know? He isn't partisan. He isn't asking you, are you a progressive or a conservative? But he shows up and he says, I'll defeat sin because that is the problem, okay? And I'm going to do this by giving up my throne, my glory, my power, and I will pay the price for sin myself. Because it's the conquering of evil and brokenness of this world that everything's going to be healed. And that's not going to come by taking power, but actually by relinquishing it. Do you see? Do you even see how revolutionary this is? Because on the one hand, it's not political at all. But on the other hand, it is breathtakingly political because this lays forth a kingdom that will heal all the ills of the world. And when you begin to understand this, oh, how Jesus has gone about and done this, like, you begin to understand something. When he says, give to God the things that are God, you begin to think about this utterly differently. Wait, I can give of myself? I don't have to measure everything out? But I belong to God. I've been given so much in him. I can pour myself out in love for others, for the glory of God. I can actually say, I will give up my right to certain things so that others can flourish. That's a radical idea. Now, people love talking about, well, my rights are violated. Yes, that happens sometimes. But you know what? In the scriptures, something else happens. When you begin to see someone else has done this for you, your attitude toward your rights begin to change. You know, you know New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado wrote a book a few years ago called The Destroyer of the Gods. It describes the distinctiveness of the early Christian community and its lasting impact on the world. And it recounts the impact the followers of Jesus had, you know, who was committed to certain things. They were committed to the exclusive worship of Jesus as their Savior. They refused to worship other gods. And they said, we see ourselves as a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And our identity is rooted in the idea that we are in him. We are the church. It's inclusive. Jew, Gentile, male, female slave-free, all came together. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor. It didn't matter your ethnic background. You were all one in Jesus Christ. People saw this and their minds were utterly blown. Because that just didn't happen in the Roman world. Hurtado talks about they practiced a sexual ethic which the pagan world was shocked by. Sex was meant to be enjoyed only in the context between a man and a woman in marriage. People, people are like, are you guys like out of your minds? I said, that makes no sense. Shouldn't we do whatever we want to do? They were incredibly generous with their money and their resources in ways that, again, they were saying, what is wrong with you people? They cared for the poor. They started hospitals. They said, people are created in the image of God That means children have dignity and worth. It's not okay to throw out our babies, especially girls, and leave them out to die. They took care of them. They started orphanages. I mean, they were willing to care for Christian and non-Christian alike. And when you look at the outflow of Jesus' kingdom that starts to show up, you begin to understand This is not about conservative, liberal, progressive. This is about a revolutionary vision of what life is meant to be. And this is how you begin to impact the world. We begin to carry the brokenness of others, the sickness of others, because you begin to understand Jesus has done this for you. And when you begin to experience this, radical things happen. We begin to give ourselves away in generous proportion, in ways at which people look and say, there is something going on there. I'm curious. Tell me more about this. Tell me more about this Jesus. And all this begins to happen as we give to God what belongs to him. Let me ask you, 
what are ways that God may be challenging you to engage in that? Perhaps he's been putting stuff on your heart around this. Perhaps he's convicting you of things you need to repent of. Perhaps he's given you a new joy of, man, I want to serve. I want to care for my community. All of these things come as we begin to reflect on giving to God what belongs to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, this morning we come giving you thanks and praise for this incredible vision of what is possible in this world when your spirit comes to bring healing. Father, we often feel like uh, things are just hopeless. We get very frustrated with uh, politics. We get frustrated with what's going on in our world. And we don't even know if you'll come through on all of your promises, even for our lives. But help us to see all that Jesus has done. Give us hope. Give us courage. Give us the ability to go out and to live as people who have received the glorious thing that your son has done. Salvation through his sacrifice. And we ask that, Lord, you would empower us this week in this, in your son's name. Amen.